Images of Jesus is a series that we're doing on the book of Mark. And uh, basically the, the concept of the title of the series and the concept of, of Mark's concept for the design of the, series, of the, of the book is this. is just quick hitting snapshots of the life of Christ. And so that's why we titled it Image, Images of Jesus. Um, and we come tonight in, in the first verse of chapter 11 to sort of a, a fork in the road. And when we get to the text tonight, um, it'll be the very first Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a Sunday before Easter. So basically what's happened here is the first ten chapters of the book of Mark covers roughly three years of the life of Christ and his public ministry a little bit. The, the first little bit is talking about Jesus as he was growing up and, uh, and a little bit about John the Baptist as well. But ultimately, the first ten chapters are the first three years of, of Jesus' public ministry. And then Mark uses the last six chapters to tell us about eight days in the life of Christ. So um, the first ten chapters are really quick, really, really quick uh, snapshots of Jesus' life. And then he spends a lot of time in these last eight days. Um, so basically, when... The, the stuff that happens we look at tonight, five days from this point, we're looking at the triumphal entry tonight, five days from that point, Jesus will be on the cross and dead. And then three days after that, he'll be resurrected and the tomb will be empty. So that's just some, some context for us as we walk through tonight's set of verses to know that uh, nobody else is aware of the fact that Jesus will be dead in five days aside from Jesus himself um, as he encounters this triumphal entry. So I, I want to go back, this, because it's this fork in the road, looking ahead to the, to the death of Christ and looking behind to all of the work that he's done, it's a, it's a good time for us to, to take a pause in the midst of, of the series and see what it is that Christ has been about and the things that he's been, uh, been doing. Uh, lay out three different parts for you. Uh, they're in your, your bulletin and they'll also be over, overhead here. So, so basically this is a a summary of the first ten chapters of the book of Mark. The, the first part, part one, which is uh, the first part of Mark through verse three, cha- uh, chapter 3, verse 6. The introduction of the major players and their roles. There are three major players and their roles that are happening throughout the book of Mark. And they're, uh, they're put forth to us in these first, basically, two or and a half chapters of Mark. They are first the disciples and... Uh, I want to be sure, be clear that we define a disciple. Disciples aren't just these 12 guys. These are the, the really intimate people with, with Christ, and, and specifically the 12 guys that, that you know and you, you've heard of. But they are the 12 guys who get to spend intimate moments with Jesus and were called specifically by Jesus. Jesus looked them in the eye and said, you come and follow me and be my disciple. And we've defined disciple throughout the course of this, this series as one who patterns his life after the life and teaching of another. So these 12 guys are following closely and intimately and, and watching and being taught about this life of Christ so that they can be a disciple. So Jesus looks them in the eye and calls them and uh, are, are sharing life and being taught by Christ. And the next group of people that he encounters are the crowds. When Jesus does his miracles and when Jesus walks on the water and when Jesus heals people and, and casts demons out, crowds tend to gather, and, and they are astonished and amazed. Mark uses those words a lot. The, the crowds were astonished, the crowds were amazed, the crowds were in awe of who Jesus was. And so these are the, the crowds, these large groups of people who mostly received from him and watched him perform his miracles and learned from his, his broad teachings. And, and I want to make clear, too, 
most of the parables that Jesus taught, he would teach to broad these, these crowds, and then he would bring his disciples together and teach them the, the intimate thoughts that he was trying to teach them about the parables. So the crowds didn't get much intimate teaching from Jesus. They got to, to listen to him teach from afar, and they got to see him create and, and do these miracles from afar, but didn't have much intimacy with him. And the third group of the major players in their role is the opposition. These are mostly religious types who distrusted Jesus and thought him to be a threat to their religious lifestyle. Um, by the way, I want to parenthetically note here that these are the people who are in opposition to Jesus, and these are the most religious people in the day. If you are an overly religious person, chances are you are in opposition with Jesus, if you are an overly religious person. Here, in the context of, of this story, in the first two and a half chapters of Mark, and even through, throughout the, the whole book of Mark, these religious people are in opposition with Jesus. Because they see him as a threat to their religious lifestyle. Part two, the second part, is Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through eight twenty-one, And it's Jesus displaying his kingdom and his power. First, Jesus displays his power over disease and death. And verses, in chapters 5 and 6, he heals many. He heals uh, the bleeding woman. He, he raises uh, Jairus' uh, daughter to life. He raises people from the dead. So Jesus is showing his power over disease. He's showing his power over death and over demons. There's many. Chapter 5 and chapter 7 have, have several stories where Jesus is casting out demons. So he's showing the world the, and the, the people in this area that he has this power over disease, over death, and to cast out demons, and then finally, nature. He walks on water in chapter 6. He, uh, he calms a storm in chapter 4. And, and this isn't all these... We're not walking through this so we can you know, have this some sort of great knowledge. We can go take a test in the book of Mark. We can take a test on, on Jesus' life. We're walking through this so that we can see that Mark is laying out for his readers that Jesus is the first the suffering servant, and second, he is... The Messiah. So Jesus is show, Mark is showing us how Jesus showed people his power and his authority, and the people that were that were intimate with Jesus, and the people that were in opposition to Jesus, and all of the things that Jesus had this this power and this authority over disease, death, demons, and nature. Then, secondly, we, we see the miracle of Jesus feeding the five thousand people, and then a, a few weeks or months later, Jesus feeds four thousand people. Jesus showing his flexing his his miraculous muscle. And then the last one, Jesus begins to use parables to teach about his coming kingdom and his disciples are allowed to hear those teaching. He has a parable about the sower, a parable about the mustard seed, and a parable about a lamp under the basket. Jesus teaches the crowds these parables and then he gathers his disciples to himself and teaches them intimately about what the kingdom is about. And we talked as we walked through that series, that, that part of the series, that this kingdom of God is about in the garden... God created this perfect shalom, this perfect peace between man and man and between God and man. But then the serpent, Satan, came and tempted Eve and Adam did nothing about it and they were, this fracture happened to this, this rhythm, this rhythmic shalom that was happening and the fracture happened. And now Jesus has come to reestablish that shalom, that peace, so that we can have peace with man and we can have peace with God. That's what the kingdom means. When, when Scripture talks about the kingdom coming... It's talking about this fracture, this rhythm that's been interrupted. Jesus has come back to 
reestablish this peace, this shalom, this rhythm to the world where we were created to be in relationship with people. We were created to be in relationship with God. So when Jesus is teaching about his kingdom, that's what he's teaching about. I've come back. I am the Messiah, the one that's come back to bring back relationship between you and man and between you and God. Part three is Mark eight twenty-two through what Dave led us through last week. Part uh, chapter 10, verse 52. Jesus revealing his purpose and teaching on discipleship. Remember, we've just kind of walked through if this images of Jesus is a is some sort of uh, walking through a, a uh, like a, a museum of sorts. Uh, here we see Jesus. We've just walked through this place where Jesus in the museum where Jesus has been talking about uh, he's been, been talking about his, his death and predicting predicting his death and his resurrection. And Jesus predicts three times in, in chapter eight, verse thirty-one, in chapter nine, verse thirty-one, and in chapter ten. Verse 33, three times there, Jesus predicts his death. And immediately after it, he begins to talk and teach about discipleship. He says, and they're listed there uh, on, on the screen above you. First, he says, in order to gain life, first you must lose it, which is his teaching on discipleship. And then next, the first shall be last. And then finally, the last thing he teaches, the greatest among you must be the servant of all. All these are, are Jesus laying out his teaching. And these are the things that he's teaching only his disciples. In order for you to be a disciple of mine, you must serve all. You must desire to be last. You must be the suffering servant like I am. And Mark is laying this out for the readers so that they can see what it is to follow Christ. So all of that is to lay out the events in the life of Christ in the first three years of his life so that we can connect with these last eight days in his life. Because... Mark is painting a whole lot of pictures to create a story so that he can tell us this more important and most important story of all time that begins with what we talk about tonight. So all these quick snapshots of Jesus that I just walked us through here, all of these snapshots are designed to tell us a story to set up this final and most important story. It's, it's important for us to, to connect with that. So now we get into the actual scripture for tonight. Starting in, in verse 1 of chapter 11. Before we get there, uh, let's, uh, let's pray that God would, would guide us as, as we seek his truth from his scripture. God, I thank you for this night, and I thank you mostly for your son, Jesus Christ, and I thank you for the scripture that you have persevered for us so that we can see how you've revealed your character and you've revealed your redemption plan for our lives, Father. I thank you for Mark's gospel, how he has shown us this life that your son lived, and now we get to encounter these last eight days of his life, God. I, I thank you for these words. Be with us now as we study, as we seek to have your truth exposed and revealed to our lives, and we can see your character, and we can see your son, and we can, at the close of tonight, stand and worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for your scripture. Thank you for your son. It's in his name. Amen. If you have a uh, one of the Bibles we give out, it's in, again, chapter uh, 11, verse 1, page 723. Um, 
Verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus went. Jesus sent two of his disciples. Before we get into where he sent them, I'm going to draw your attention to uh, a map that's on the screen above me here. Uh, Fire that up there, Kyle, if we could. Uh, this is Jerusalem. And you see there on the right side of the screen, that is the, the eastern portion of the map, Mount of Olives, uh, and just to the north and to the east of that, the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where Jesus will be as he's praying with his disciples. Just east of the Mount of Olives is Bethany and Bethpage. So where, what he's talking about, where these disciples are actually walking, is just off of this map to the east, but uh, kind of central to the map, a little bit above the center of the map, and in the middle there is the, the temple, which is where Jesus will, will wind up tonight as he's walking through with his disciples to look around the temple uh, and most of the action that takes place tonight is a road that's heading from where it says their Mount of Olives into the temple area. So we'll give you some some insight as to where what things are happening. So Bethany and Bethpage are about a half a mile from the temple where it is. So these disciples are, are on about a half a mile journey and they're walking. So it's, you know, what's it going to take you to, to walk a half a mile? They're probably 10, 15 minutes away from being in the temple. This uh, triangle, as it's been uh, called by Scripture. So that gives you a little background, some geography about where we are and what's happening. And again, it's the Mount of Olives. So they're walking up a, a probably not like a, a mountain like as in we see in Colorado, but a, a pretty, pretty large uh, hill mountain that they're walking up and then walk down as they walk into Jerusalem. So they... They're sent ahead into Bethany and Bethpage where the events that are described in chapter, in verse 2. Let's go there, 11-2. And he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. Basically, they're going to go steal a donkey. And if somebody asked, why are you stealing that donkey? Uh, Jesus told me to. Um, that probably won't work today. Verse 4. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. This is not vital teaching, just straightforward information giving that Mark is giving to us to set up uh, verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. Verse 5. And some of those standing there said to them, Hey, what are you doing untying that colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. The cloaks that they put, their jackets, their, their coverings, basically to, to create a saddle for Jesus to ride on. Um, interesting to note, Zechariah 9.9, 9, an Old Testament prophecy, says this, written hundreds of years before these events take place. This is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Hundreds of years ago, before these events happen, it's prophesied in Zechariah that this is what's going to happen. Jesus knows this, and God knows this, and they plant this donkey and for him to, to come and take and ride into Jerusalem to walk into Jerusalem on. Uh, interesting thought. Verse 8. And here's 
All of everything that I've spoken and all these verses that Mark has used are setting up these next four verses. So the the majority of the teaching tonight and the majority of, of what we can learn and apply to our hearts comes from these verses. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. First of all, I need to give a little insight. The Easter, the Passover is happening. Jesus is going to Jerusalem with His disciples to celebrate the Passover, which is a huge... It's the 4th of July and Christmas combined for us in America. The Passover is a huge event. And so it's a week away and, and Jesus and His disciples are going and there's a lot of people travel to Jerusalem. It's the Mecca for the Jews at Passover to go to Jerusalem. So there's sort of a, a chaotic Christmassy sort of feel here in Jerusalem that's happening. And now Jesus is walking in and many of these these people that are here watching are scholars, are Old Testament scholars, and they would have known this Zechariah passage that Jesus is going to walk in on this cult. So they, wow, this is the Messiah. Everything is coming together here as Jesus walks in. But I want to note uh, one thing. Hosanna, what they shout there. We sang it. The last song we sang, Hosanna. Uh, it's, it's a very important word. It's a compound word. It's actually a Hebrew word that is translated here in the Greek, and it's the, the word is, is a compound word, meaning I beseech you. That's the first half. I beseech you. And the second half is to save us. Never is the word Hosanna uttered where it's not an exclamation. The, the very essence of the word is a shout. Nobody ever says, hey, Hosanna. It's always, Hosanna! It, because it is in itself an exclamation. I beseech you to save us. So these people lined up alongside the road are screaming, to Jesus, please save us. And never is this word just whispered or just spoken. It's always yelled. And these are Old Testament scholars. These are people who study their scripture because in Psalm 118, it's basically a paraphrase of what these people are saying. Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the the exclamation that they're screaming is an exclamation from Psalm 118. Right? So these people know their scripture. They know their Old Testament. These are Hebrew scholars. These are important people. Uh, Now, moving to, to verse 10, and we'll get into more depth of this passage. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. We beseech you, O Lord, to save us. But before they say that, they talk about this kingdom. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This brings us more understanding of what is happening. First, David is the hero to these people. And David isn't just a, a normal hero. He is a war hero to these people. And when they are saying, save us, they're not saying, save us like we have the perspective to see that that Jesus is going to come and save them from. Ultimately, what Jesus is coming and saving them from in their minds is oppression. David saved these hundreds of years before this from the oppression of 
of the uh, Philistines and, and lots of others Jesus or David freed them from. He's this war hero that brought about military and, and political success for these Jewish people. So when they are referencing, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, they're not talking about that whole shalom and fracture and peace and rhythm that I talked about before. They're talking about a kingdom where we are the best, where we rule. We are the superpower of the world, the kingdom of David that's coming. That's what they were talking about when they see this. And when they're saying, when they reference David, he conquered many nations and and they want to be freed from the tyranny and oppression of Rome that they feel at this point. The Jews are subject to Roman rule and Roman tyranny and Roman oppression. And when they're looking for this Messiah to come, he's going to save them from that physical and, and felt oppression that they they experience. And it's, again, a crazy time and a crazy scene. Passover is happening. Fourth of July and Christmas all rolled into one. And now our Messiah is here. He's coming. He's going to save us and bring us this military freedom, this military might. Then, more to the point, this Passover week, what's etched in these people's minds is this memory of Moses being celebrated. They're celebrating the Passover. The Passover was very simply this, is that back uh, hundreds of years prior to this, in the the time of Moses, uh, the Egyptians were making slaves of God's people, of the Jewish people, and ten different plagues were sent on the nation of Egypt, and the last one was the the angel of death would, would come and visit. And if there was the blood of the spotless lamb sprayed over the, the top of the door, the angel of death would not visit that house. And it would pass over that house. And it was the last straw that allowed the, the Egyptian ruler to, to allow the Israelites to leave, the Jews to leave. So it's a, a big, huge celebration. It's their 4th of July. They now have their independence from Egypt. And so they're thinking about the Passover, this, this great time, and they are speaking about this military might, strong war hero David, and now they're seeing Jesus to come. Basically, this is, this Jesus is the personification of Moses and David. We're going to have this freedom. Uh, today, kind of bring some context to you. We live in St. Louis, a, a baseball town, uh, and everything is sort of centered around baseball in this town, and the Cardinals clinched last night. Yay, party. Uh, and... Today, there was a, I, I actually happened to get tickets to this, like, uh, basically fan appreciation day at, at the ballpark. I went down there this afternoon, and the, uh, the, basically, it's, you get to walk in, and they, they give free concessions, and, uh, and you get to walk all throughout the dugout, and, and through the dugout and the clubhouse and onto the field and, and taking pictures, and there's former Cardinals that are there. And I got a chance, as, as I'm walking through there, I'm, I'm thinking about, Man, I really want to impress upon Cooper the the greatness of the cardinal tradition. And I'm talking to him about uh, how my grandfather watched Stan Musial play, and how he talked to my dad about Stan Musial and how what a great player Stan Musial was. And, and he talked about it over and over again. And my dad learned to love the Cardinals through the eyes of my grandfather and how he loved Stan Musial. And then I got to learn from my dad the tradition of the Cardinals, as he told me about his favorite player, the, this great iconic figure named Bob Gibson. And he's the, the, you know holds the record for lowest ERA in a, in a season, and just you know a lot of people consider him to be the best right-handed pitcher of all time. And he was a Cardinal, and 
my dad got to say, I got to see this kid play as a kid at Sportsman's Park and at Bush Stadium. It was great, and the Cardinals were great, and they won a World Series in 1967. They should have won in 1968. And so I get indoctrinated on this Cardinal tradition. And then for me, it's, it's Ozzie Smith. I grew up as a, as a shortstop, wanted to be the shortstop for the Cardinals, and their iconic figure was Ozzie Smith. And I probably wanted to be a shortstop because of Ozzie Smith. And so I get to tell my son about how he would do a backflip at the beat the first game of every season as he's running out to a shortstop position. Then the last game of every season, he'd do another backflip. And, and he was this great defensive player, and he was really fast, and he personified who the Cardinals were in the 80s. And now, for him, he has this new great iconic figure. He was there today in his Pujols jersey. And he, he actually, it was, it was really cool because he told me this as we were driving down. He's like, Dad, Ozzie was, was your guy, and I, I hope maybe he'll be there today. We can get his autograph. But for me, the guy I'm going to tell my kids about, he actually said this, the guy I'm going to tell my kids about is Alan Pujols. And it was, it was really cool. And, and it's, it's that sort of feel that I want to pass on to my son that, that he would, would see the tradition of the Cardinals like I did. I was taught about, about Mutual from my grandfather. I was taught about Gibson from my dad. And I got to watch Ozzy. And now my son gets to watch Pujols. And, and he gets taught from, from me and my dad about Gibson and, and Ozzy Smith. And, and it's this sort of tradition that we get to see. And we were at the ballpark experiencing it. And, and all over the place are these fathers and sons and, and fathers taking pictures of their sons. And it's this sort of tradition that we experience and we can really connect with as St. Louisans that, you know, our team, our town is the Cardinals. This is the baseball town. It's talked about in the media all the time. And it's that sort of understanding that we bring to this setting. Jerusalem... And the story is, is St. Louis here. And instead of Bob Gibson and Stan Musial, it's David and it's Moses. And instead of Albert Pujols, it's Christ. These were the saviors of the Cardinals. These are the saviors of the Jewish people. And this is the connection that we make. And, and you can imagine what it's going to be like in October when the Cardinals are in the World Series and, and how it's going to be just nuts and crazy and and everybody's going to want to be at Bush Stadium. And even if you don't have a ticket, you're going to gather around Bush Stadium. And imagine if, if people got to watch Albert Pujols walk into the stadium. All the craziness that would happen. It's the same concept here. We have the tradition of the Cardinals. They have the tradition of this religion and, and seeing their past and their history. And here, it's Jesus. And these people's minds are being evoked in their, their, of the life of Moses because it's Passover. Their, their voices are evoking the memory of David because they're saying, you are the son of David, that you are here to come and save us, to bring us freedom. Cardinals, we won a World Series. They're wanting their freedom. But they miss the point. They miss the understanding. What they're really going to be given freedom from is freedom from sin, from the bondage of sin. And the bondage of sin is what has caused this fracture so that now we are in opposition with God and we are in opposition with man. Relationships just don't work because of sin. Relationship with man and relationship with God just don't work because of sin. But the kingdom that Jesus is bringing to us here is this this beautiful relationship with man and this beautiful relationship with God that's coming as he comes to establish his kingdom. They're getting it wrong and Jesus tries to teach them to get it right. I want to close with with some irony here. What, I, what I've called the beautiful and horrific irony. 
these people here that are shouting Hosanna in five days will be shouting crucify him. Connect with that thought. What's happening here, walking into Jerusalem on a donkey is Jesus. And these people are gathered around and they're shouting, beseeching Jesus to come and to save us. These same people, five days later, today's Sunday, on Thursday, they're going to be saying, crucify Him. They're, they're shouting, save us, and, and shouting the words of, of David in the past from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Scripture to Jesus. And five days later, they'll be saying, crucify him. It's a beautiful and horrific irony. Then, this here, this guy who's walking here into Jerusalem on this donkey, being followed by all these people, this is the Messiah who rules and reigns. Whatever he decides to happen is going to happen. If Jesus wanted to stand up and receive this fanfare for all of time, that's what would have happened. But it's not the redemptive plan of God. Instead, Jesus, the Messiah who rules and reigns, became Jesus, the Messiah, who will be tortured and killed. Do you see the beautiful and horrific irony? Save us. Crucify him. Ruling and reigning, tortured and killed. That beautiful irony coming together, but it's also horrific. Now, the beautiful and horrific irony spun. We look at, we're looking at these people in Jerusalem, in this context of this scripture, and now we turn it to, to this. We worship and profess loyalty. We stood moments ago and sung, Hosanna. We sung, we beseech ye, O Lord, save us. We sung that, Hosanna. We will stand in a, in a moment and worship God and profess our loyalty. I've prayed all week, God, would you connect my heart? Would you, this, there's not much practical application that we can walk out and go do something with this message. Instead, it is a message that we connect our hearts with the beauty of Scripture and we see the irony that, that God has, has given to us and we, our response is one of worship. And I've asked God to connect my heart with worship all week. But we are not just a group of people that worship this Savior and profess our loyalty to the Savior, but we also are idol worshipers and adulterers. Connect with the beautiful and horrific irony of that. We're going to stand and we're going to worship in, in just a few minutes. And us that are standing and worshiping are just like those people along the, the street walking into Jerusalem who are saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and five days later are saying, crucify him. We are those people. Screaming Hosanna and screaming, crucify him. That is our lives, day to day, all the time. It's a beautiful and horrific irony. And connect our hearts with that because the last beautiful and horrific irony is the gospel. We are completely accepted. Beautiful. You are 100% completely accepted through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
You have access to the Father through faith in what Jesus did. Period. You are accepted. At the same time, you are completely sinful. We are an adulterous generation choosing ourselves time after time after time. And at the heart of it, we are accepted. The beautiful and horrific irony that is the gospel. We get a chance to connect our hearts with that, which brings us to an opportunity of worship. But before we get there, I want to see this last image of Jesus in the temple. Verse 11, chapter 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What's happened simply is this. Nobody is around Jesus. And he walks into the temple. And he knows that five days later he's going to be dead. And in a, in a silent moment, just him and the temple, he looks around. He's already talked about how he's going to destroy the temple. And three days later he's going to raise it. And the there's beautiful irony that's there. Jesus, in a, in a moment of, of quiet, looks around at his father's house and knows what's ahead of him. And he takes a deep breath and looks around and leaves. Mark is painting this grand picture. He's telling this grand story that ends here with Jesus looking around and knowing that he is the suffering servant who is the Messiah. Every story that Mark has told is painting this picture. All the smaller stories of Jesus that we talked about at the beginning of the message tonight are together for the purpose of getting us to the place where we see him as this Messiah. He's set it up. He's laid all of the groundwork for these moments to tell this most important story. It is the story of the last week of the life of Christ. And the first part of that story concludes here with a quiet and reflective Jesus looking around at his father's house. I want to pause now just for a moment and have a moment of of silent reflection for us as we've looked through these horrific and beautiful ironies where we are worshiping and, and giving shouts of Hosanna to Christ and then moments later Worshipping our idols, worshipping ourselves, and shouting crucify him. An adulterous generation. And connect with this beautiful picture of the gospel that we are completely accepted and we are completely sinful at the same time. The beautiful irony that's there. And pause for a moment and look around at the temple of Jesus. Which isn't this building, which isn't a building in Jerusalem, it's our hearts. Look quietly and intimately into our own hearts and see how God has come and changed us. And then we rise to worship our Savior. Bow with me and and reflect, and then I'll pray.
precious Lord and Holy Father. I thank you for these beautiful and these horrific ironies that you've shown us tonight. God, connect our hearts with this image of Jesus that you have painted in our minds and in our hearts tonight, Father. Lord, allow us in these moments to to worship you in spirit and in truth, Father. As you have revealed the truth of your Son, you've revealed your plan of redemption to our hearts, God. May we rise as ones who said, crucify Him. And by the power of Your Son, stand and rise and exalt and and exclaim, Hosanna. Exclaim, worship to You. Attach worship to You, Father. Connect our hearts with the beauty of this irony, Father. God, guide us as we worship You. Change our hearts in these moments and in the moments five days from now. I thank You for Jesus. I thank You for His life and His death and His life. It's in His perfect name that I pray. Amen.